Welcome back to Money Under the Mattress podcast. My name is Mitchell and my co-host is Jake. And today we are joined by Alex Morris, also known as the Science of Hitting on Twitter. Alex has written close to 800 articles on Guru Focus and just started the TSOH Investment Research Service on Subtract. He holds an MBA from the University of Florida, as well as a CFA. He has quoted his investment thesis from Munger as patience, followed by pretty aggressive conduct. He runs a concentrated portfolio with his top five positions, accounting for the majority of his value. Thanks for coming on today, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited for this. Awesome. Uh, so I guess we'll start off with our first question right off the bat. Um, how did you start, like, get started in investing? Well, uh, as you guys were telling me before we started rolling, you you guys kind of fell in this into this recently in kind of your college days and you know around twenty. And for for me, it was really similar. I I went to college and I didn't really have any any idea what I wanted to do. I I started with building construction just because my dad's a plumber, so I was just figured why not just follow what he had done until I found something better to do. And I realized I didn't like that too much. I didn't like building construction. So I decided to change my major to finance after I had, I had stumbled across the Warren Buffett letters. And um, I think I had read Peter Lynch around that time too. So I, I kind of fell into it and kind of like you guys were telling me, I like for yourselves, I, I just got obsessed with it. And I had a buddy and I, and we went to, I can remember one summer we went to the library, I think every single day, basically, and we would just go for whatever, six, seven, eight hours and just sit there and read 10 Ks. And we had no idea what we were doing, obviously, but we were, we were trying to figure it out. Um, I think that year, I believe, or maybe the year after we actually drove from Gainesville, Florida up to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, which for anybody who lives in the U.S., that's a that's a good drive. Uh, it's like 20 hours each way, I think, some 25 hours maybe. So, and we were college kids, obviously, we had no money, so we just slept in Walmart parking lots. And I think it took us two days to get up there. We went to the meeting for a couple hours, and then we turned around and drove back. So <laughs> we were uh, we were pretty pretty invested in investing, and. I've uh, been plugging away ever since. I after I got out of school, I got a job at a small RIA, an investment advisor in Jacksonville, and in that role, I did everything from, you know, basically the equity analysis, kind of picking the portfolio, but I also did the trading. I was, you know, a, a glorified secretary when clients came in. I got them coffee and I mailed statements, et cetera, et cetera. I did everything. So um, that was a great learning experience. Then I went back to school got my CFA. And at that point, I, I moved to a firm in Savannah, Georgia, which was which was a larger RIA. And I did that for about five years. And you know, I, I greatly enjoyed working there. The people I worked with were were good people and they were, were focused on the objectives of the firm. But an RIA, in my opinion, at the end of the day is really, you know, it's more of an asset gatherer. It's more of a, a financial planning type of firm. And I've always really been drawn to the to the investment side of the business. And so that, that kind of led to my decision here in the last couple of months to, to break off on my own and launch uh, the TSOH Investment Research Service on Substack. So that's, a, that's 11 or 12 years condensed into two or three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that kind of sounds like a familiar story that me and Jake will be eventually having. Um, we'll be going to uh, the Berkshire meetings. I mean, the last two that we've attended are been both online. Um, but right. Both. Well, they got to get them going before before too long. These guys are uh, they're getting a little old. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, like we're 
I think we're 29 hour drive to Berks or to uh, Omaha. Um, so yeah, I think we might it's be, worth uh, it. yeah, exactly. I think we might be attending the same Walmart parking lots that you would have. <laughs> um, so, uh, there you go, Jake. Okay, perfect. So, um, would you say Alex that you you focus more on the qualitative or quantitative quantitative side of companies that you're researching? You know, it's it, it's kind of funny to think about the answer to that question. It's almost like when people ask if you're a growth or a value investor. I don't. It's a hard question for me to answer because they both play into everything that I do. The same goes for qualitative or quantitative. It, it's there's there's components of each that are very fundamental into the things that I'm looking at for a company. So for example, I just wrote up Dollar General. Well, the quantitative for that could mean the unit economics, you know, the, the economics of the, the next store that they build. Obviously that's incredibly important. Um, but there's also the qualitative stuff that I think really matters like management's vision for the future and how they're trying to use what I think is a sustainable competitive advantage to further improve the value of the box, what they can deliver to their customers. Um, so there's all, there's so many different components of both that I, I don't really think I could choose one or the other. So how much money does it typically cost for Dollar General to build a store? So the cost per box, if you're counting for like leasehold improvements, equipment, things like that is, is really low. It's about $250,000 a store. Um, you know, obviously they have inventory investment that goes into the, to the store that's somewhat offset by, uh, uh, payables, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pretty low investment and obviously there's operating leases there too. So it's not, that's not a totally clean way to look at it in my opinion, but to the extent mm -hmm. that the boxes are successful, it is. And, and, you know, once, once a box gets up to the store average, it's, it, as of last year, it was putting up about $200,000 in operating income per box. So obviously, you don't even need to run the calculations to know that that's a pretty <laughs> attractive returns. return on investment if you can do it consistently over and over again. Yeah. How long, um, you know, when you're, because I believe that you just initially invested into Dollar General like the other day, right? Correct. Okay. Um, so how long, like what's your holding period do you believe for dollar general? Like, you know, when I make an investment, uh, like I've had a latest investment in a Canadian um, online bank. Um, like mm -hmm. I kind of map it out to say like, okay, well, I'll probably hold this for at least five years, like at, at least five years. And then we'll kind of reassess the situation at that time um, for something like dollar general. Where does that go? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I think about it, obviously, when I'm going in, my intention is to be a long-term investor, which may mean, you know, my, my two largest positions, just by way of example, are Microsoft and Berkshire Hathaway, which I've owned since I started investing, really. I mean, I think I opened a brokerage account in 2011. I've owned, I've owned both of those companies the entire time. And with Berkshire, I've never sold a share. And with Microsoft, I've trimmed but a small amount over the course of you know i think the most recent trim was a couple probably three or four years ago um so it depends if i think this story is playing out as i hope it will and if the valuation remains you know within within reason which is obviously loosely defined and changes over time but to the extent that happens if if i think it's a very good business which i do 
And I think they have a reinvestment run runway and they have a good management team that's honest and able. I view it as a, a position I would potentially hold for many, many years or even decades. So I'm guessing that you see it as like a, I'm not sure if you follow Monish Pabrai, but he says it's a growing pie type of business. Yeah, I don't follow Manish too closely anymore, but what, what would he mean by that? So a growing pie just means that um, just that you're investing in the business and it's a growing business, not just like a, for an example, like a heritage growth properties might be um, just like a stagnant business that's severely undervalued, um, but it doesn't see like much growth potential from that. Um, I got you. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a good example of that. They've added, you know, over the past decade, they've added something like 7,800 net new stores. Um and obviously the base is much larger than it used to be, but they see the opportunity to continue adding new stores, both with, you know, traditional dollar general format, but also some of the newer, the newer banners that, that they're trying to operate. And, you know, to the extent that they can successfully do that, you have growth from new units, you have growth from uh, same source sales growth, you have Obviously, if the economics are as good as I think they should be, that the, the business will have a lot of capital to use towards repurchases or dividends. So, there, yeah, there's a, a couple different ways that, and obviously it's the best would be if, if all three of those things happened. Um, but there's a couple different ways that I think you, you win on an investment like this over time. Hmm, interesting. So besides Buffett and Munger, is there any other, you know, big name investors that you kind of like to uh, learn from or, you know, uh, look at what they're doing every quarter or year? Gosh, there's been so many over time. And, you know, honestly, honestly, as, I, as I've, you know, uh, I don't know what the term is, matured more as an investor as time's gone on, I'm honestly drawn to uh, operators and, and someone like a Buffett obviously applies here too, but I'm drawn more to operators as opposed to, you know, traditional hedge fund managers or things like that. People like Sachin Adela or Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon, John Malone, like these type of people, what they do as they think about running businesses, which obviously includes capital allocation across the gamut. Um, I think looking at what they do over time for me is a lot more interesting than, I mean, there's there's obviously some hedge fund managers or fund managers generally that have a very long term time horizon, like a Nick Sleep or, you know, like a Josh Tarasov, someone like that. But for the people who are kind of buying things and to some extent trading them, I'm I'm just not really as drawn to that anymore. So I tend to look more at operators. That makes sense. Um, I'm interested, definitely in Nick Sleep, like. Uh, me and Jake both have read uh, the next sleep letters lately. Um, and I'm, you don't hear a lot of people talk about him, um, but his letters are fantastic. And he talks always about uh, like owner operators as well as like backing up on the entrepreneur. Um, and mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs are like the longest holders within a business, such as like Sam Walton from uh, Walmart or, um, you know, Jeff Bezos or Jack. Yeah. Or Zuckerberg, someone like that, maybe. Exactly. Yes, exactly. No, that's definitely interesting. Um, I kind of want to go on and talk about your Microsoft, um, investment. You invested like back in 2011. Is that correct? Yeah. I think my first purchase was in, I've looked at this like 10 times and I always forget. I think it was February, 2011, February, 2011. That, 
that's unreal because Microsoft was so um, underlooked um, as almost like just like a bad investment. People were really like uh, on the fence about Microsoft. There was like, I think there was value investors who were pitching that, right? I think I heard that between you and Toby or there was another. uh, Yeah. No, it was definitely, it was, it was a very different story back then than it is today. It was very much a, it was very much a value stock and, you know, they had a good balance sheet at that time. They still had the, some of the things that are still very important today, but people question their sustainability, whether it was, you know, Windows was a big one, given what was happening with phones and tablets and the like. Uh, people worried about the office productivity suite because of Google Docs and things like that. You know, server and tools was what just kind of an early predecessor to what became much of their cloud computing business today, or at least is in that same arena. It was somewhat overlooked in my opinion, and I'm, I'm no expert in terms of the technology of those things, but just in terms of the financials, it seemed overlooked. So it was, it was definitely a different story. And, you know, it's been a great, it's been a great learning experience to have, to have lived through that and to see how, the sentiment has really evolved and, and even honestly how the actual business has evolved too. I mean, it's obviously the business results today. If you looked at a chart of revenue growth or EPS or something like that, the business results in the last three years are very different than what the company reported in call it the 2011 to 2014 period. So um, I always, I always, try to make clear that um, there's 100% luck played a factor into that investment. I think where I personally feel good about what I did with that investment was one, learning how the story was changing as the facts changed. I, I remember the hiring of Satya Nadella was a, a really big moment in my mind because there was an idea that if they hired anybody internally, it would be a mistake because Microsoft was perceived to have a lot of issues and a bunch of names were batted around. I think Meg Whitman was, I I know Alan Mulally was, who was the CEO at Ford or maybe the former CEO at Ford. I can't remember now. Um, But it it was just funny when they hired Nadella and the, and the selection process took a long time, by the way, the board took a while. So there was a lot of angst around that decision. And when they hired him, I remember reading some of the, um, we would call them superficial press reports. And it kind of played to that line of, oh, it's an internal hire. This is a mistake, basically. And then I actually read stuff about Sachin Adela and who he was and the way he thought. And I remember one guy who wrote an article was from a software company that Microsoft had acquired and Nadella. I think was the point man on the deal or this guy ended up working for Nadella once he joined Microsoft after the acquisition. And it just painted a completely different picture. And for me, it was a good example of where price can really drive narrative and that narrative is not necessarily accurate. So for me, that was really eye-opening. And then from there, even if that wasn't enough, you had the next handful of years and yeah, he ended up writing a book and, there were just a bunch of things that happened that led led me to say, well, this seems like it's really starting to move in the right direction. And obviously you had things like Azure, you had 
you know, Office 365, you had, you had a, a bunch of data points that indicated things were really getting better. Um, of course, the valuation started to go in that direction as well, which for, you know, someone like myself who, who sees himself or did see himself, maybe is a better way to frame it as a traditional value investor. That's when it starts to get scary. You know, you're buying a Microsoft at 10 times and you're, it gets to 15 and it's like, uh Oh, you know, what do I do now? Um, I think living through that and learning to have patience as it, as it showed, it truly was a great business was probably the most important part of the investment, not even the dollars that were made from it. So I'm happy to answer any follow-up, but that, that's just kind of a high level of how I think about it. So where do you see it in the future? From where we are today? Yeah. Like where, how do you see it progressing going forward, Microsoft? I mean, I think at its core, the company is a very, a, a very good partner for the CIOs and, you know, it, it, corporate America is one way to think about it, but it really, it really gets to the mission that they talk about, which is productivity for everybody, basically. You know, it, the, the, the services and tools that they provide are so valuable and their ability to continue to expand their breadth of offerings, the nuanced deal that they did here relatively recently or announced relatively recently is a good example of that. The TAM is just so big <laughs> and they have such a good position in terms of selling their products and continuing to make better and better products. And the balance sheet's fantastic. The management team is very, very good with no signs of going anywhere. It's just, it's really hard right now to see negatives in terms of the business or the opportunity ahead, which of course means that you're going to have to answer those questions in terms of the valuation, right? Because <laughs> whatever those two things, whatever those two things are good, then you, you can guess that the stock's probably not going to be very cheap, at least optically. Um, I think for me, it's, it's a balance of recognizing well, one, don't let things get too out of hand in terms of valuation, which is obviously kind of a gray area. It's something you have to kind of think through for yourself and decide what you're personally comfortable with. Mm. But it's also recognizing the reality that what I just described with you is incredibly rare. It's, it's not easy to find. So yeah. to go sell a business or to part ways with a management team that you think is top 10%, top 5%, top 1%, you know, whatever it is, to go buy something else just because it's cheaper. I think I've learned over time that that, that idea can, can be quite flawed. So, you know, yeah. go day by day and try to try to be thoughtful about any decision-making, but to the extent that I can own an interest in this business at a price that, you know, to quote Charlie Munger is just a little silly for me. I think that's still the right decision. Yeah. It's hard to switch that for another investment that, you know, where Microsoft, you've followed it for, you know, 10, 11 years, and then you'd have to jump into something new where you might not know as well. It's, it's really hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously there's tax consequences too. And, but even if there weren't, I mean, I, I honestly wonder if, if there weren't any tax consequences, well, it probably would, it, it would have led to decision-making that at least in hindsight would have been poor. Um, but I just think as I look to the next five, 10, even 20 years, I, I see their positioning, their position continues to improve. And I, and I think that will continue to be the case, but we'll, we'll see whether or not I'm right on that. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, so it's very similar to like, that's what it sounds like. It's very similar to the Munger investment at Costco, how he says that there'd be almost no price that he'd sell at. Is that similar to you with Microsoft? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, it's funny, it's funny you say this. I, my, I, we're recording this on June 16th. I have an article coming out tomorrow about the idea of never sell. And I open with a quote from Charlie Munger. Let me pull it up real quick, just cause it'll help. Uh, okay it'll help frame this discussion a little bit or it definitely is lined with it. The quote from Munger is psychologically, I don't mind holding a company I like and admire and trust and know will be stronger than now after many years. And if the valuation gets a little silly, I just ignore it. So I, so I own assets that I would never buy at their current prices, but I am quite comfortable holding them. I cannot defend it in terms of logic. I don't defend this logic. I just say, this is the way I do it. And it keeps me more comfortable to do it this way. So the article I just wrote basically goes into why would someone who is so focused on being rational and being logic do something that he admits is not logical. And I think I think part of the answer is that, uh, not to bury the lead, it it is logical, basically. Or it's logical if you think about what is my least bad option, essentially. So I think for something like Costco, if you look at the business, this is a long lead up to answering your question, but if you think about the business, they have, I don't know the number off the top of my head, let's say they have 700 warehouses globally. Mm-hmm. Yep. Unit growth has been, it's been low to mid single digits for a long time, annualized. They've also reported very good comps for a very long time. They've opened new stores international or new warehouses internationally to great reception, generally speaking. So as you think about that setup, for me, if someone came in and told me this business can continue to add units at three, four, five percent annualized for the next 10, 20, 30 years, I would bet that they're more likely to be right than they are to be wrong. So now you think about obviously comps and you know uh, capital returns, et cetera, et cetera. Point being that they might be able to realistically put up 10%, let's call it 10% annualized EPS growth for 30 years. <laughs> How do you think about that in terms of a multiple? Is 35 times too expensive in that context? Definitely not. In a, in a world where long bonds are low single digits? So I, I think a lot of this stuff comes back to how you frame it and how you think about it and what your time horizon is and what you're betting on. Um, I don't know if I'm totally there on making that bet, which is why I don't own Costco, but it's something I've watched for a long time. And, you know, I, I, I think I've probably been wrong so far and there's a good chance I'm still wrong right now. So I, I think that's why he... I think that's what he means when he talks like that. And it's kind of funny. You hear people say things like, you know, this, this, this stock I'm invested in, it's, it's at a premium to intrinsic value, but I'm willing to give it a long leash because it's a great business. And to me, that's, it's a nonsensical statement because the, the calculation of intrinsic value accounts for the greatness, you know, the characteristics of the business are accounted for in the calculation. I think what they really mean when they say that is I know it kind of looks expensive optically, but I think this business is truly great and it's probably going to exceed everybody's expectations, including my own. So it's a long way of answering it, but that that's kind of how I think people get comfortable or stay comfortable with situations like that. And there's definitely uh, 
some some of that in my thesis on a Microsoft or even a Disney today or other names that I own. I think I know what you're going to say to this question, but uh, what's your take on inflation? Well, my my main take is that uh, I I have no idea. <laughs> my my second take is to the extent that it is a real thing or ends up being, you know, higher than what we've become accustomed to. My my main way to defend against it or to deal with it is to own businesses that are able to navigate it better than others. Um, so, and obviously within a portfolio, that may mean some companies that are better at it than others. But I, I just have no way to intelligently think about something like that, particularly in terms of long-term implications. I mean, if it, if it, if it happens for a year or two, I don't, it just doesn't really mean anything to me. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't materially impact the intrinsic value of Costco or something, or, you know, a company I might be looking at. So, but to the extent that it did, I would, I would do what I could to ensure that, you know, I was, I was reacting appropriately, but I, I just don't know how to do anything in advance of those kind of structural changes. Makes sense. That's kind of what I expected. Uh, and it gets I, in the way. And honestly, I, I even to the extent that people try, I think sometimes it gets in the way of intelligent decisions is probably mm-hmm. also why I also why I kind of shy away from even trying. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. That's very understandable. Um, I guess just to ask you the other question, um, where do you see the current markets right now? I guess in terms of valuations? In terms of valuations, like in, I guess to kind of back off the uh, VAH, um, what inning are we in? I don't know. It's it's you know it's it's obviously always very difficult to say. Um, it also depends on you know terms like expensive or cheap. They they don't mean a lot without context for what people are referring to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's. Um, if you're telling me that long bonds are going to stay at two or 3% for a very, very, very long time, then I can find a lot of assets that I'd really like to own that I think will generate significantly better returns than that. Um, if that changes and obviously that would flow through in terms of stuff like, you know, interest expense and the like, or if tax rates change, you know, there's a lot of variables that could change. So um, I can still find stuff that I, that I think is interesting, but um, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to. I'd, I'd rather buy Dollar General at 14 times than at, you know, 21 times. So <laughs> it's, uh, but you know, it's it's a it's a trade-off, and things come up from time to time. And I think that the bigger thing for me is is less of is is now the time to sell and then try to find a way back in later. My mindset goes more to what companies or management teams can I partner with that no matter which way the wind blows, they're always working and finding ways to improve their competitive position and set the company up for long, long-term success. And, you know, I feel like I have that with companies like Microsoft or, or a dollar general, a newer position or Berkshire. And it, you know, when you live through a period like the early, early 2020, it, it's really nice 
for me at least, it's really nice to own things where I just don't really have any concern about the short term because I know how strong the business is and I know how well financed it is and and things like that. I don't I, I just never want to get caught in a position where I, I have to worry about obviously the whole system going down is a different concern, but any any one company that I'm investing in being so dependent upon strangers or capital markets in order to stay in business. I just have no interest in even even starting to consider an investment in a company like that. So when you're valuing a business, do you tend to use like a static hurdle rate as a discount rate, or do you kind of do the profit approach of opportunity costs with the long-term bonds? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a little bit of everything at this point as, as, as unhelpful of an answer as that is. I, I, for a long time thought of it as a, I need to hit whatever it might have been. Might have started at 15, might have dropped as well, something like that. But, you know, effectively, if you start doing that, unless you're really willing to really concentrate on a handful of ideas that you like, you start to get into the question of asset allocation and, and whether or not you want to build up huge cash, cash positions as you sell things, as they become, you know, they cross certain hurdles, essentially. And... I think I've seen enough people try to play that game and I myself included at, at times where I just don't love the idea of, of having these massive swings in a cash balance that, I mean, at the end of the day, it becomes akin to market timing. I, I think I'm, I'm more drawn to the view of, first of all, start with the most important filter, which for me is business quality. So set your opportunity set, or your, you know, your watch list based on that, and then go through that watch list and try to find the the securities that are most reasonable within that group. And, you know, if there's times where you have a five or 10 or 15% cash balance, I mean, for me, that's, it's not a huge deal. You know, if the market, if you miss, if you miss a couple of years of 10% annualized returns or something, it's a hundred basis point cash drag. I mean, it's not great, but it's, it's better than having 40% in cash. So yeah. I, I, I kind of think about it in terms of opportunity cost, just buying, you know, relative to what my next best idea is. So the number tends to be, it's, it's not a specific number. And I, I think a lot of people who try to play that game with a specific number have, have found it really painful to operate in a new environment like this with record low, you know, with, with interest rates as low as they are. So I think you need to be, you know, it's kind of funny as an investor, and I've, I've talked about this with my friend Francisco and Bill as well. You know, you come into this, you come into this game with an idea of Mr. Market inefficiency. Uh, you know, Mr. Market doesn't know what he's doing. I'm a long-term investor. You know, people are overreacting to short-term developments. And I think as time goes on, what you what you start to realize is the market's pretty darn smart. The market actually does think pretty long-term as it relates to securities like, you know, Netflix, Amazon, you know, a bunch of companies like that. Um, the market's not dumb. And to, to do things like going to 50% cash, as an example, to me, it just strikes me as too much of an, of an arrogant act. I would just like to continue to own the best businesses I can. If that means I get hit with a temporary drawdown from time to time, you know, that's the reality of investing. Sense. Have you always had this Munger approach um, to investing, or have you ever have you ever been uh, interested in like the Ben Graham, um, more like early Warren Buffett approach? 
No, I was never really, I was never really drawn to, drawn to that approach. Um, I'm not totally sure why. It's just something maybe, you know, obviously reading Buffett and reading, you know, I was reading what he was writing way, way after he had, you know, kind of made that transition. I also wonder if it was just they were playing that game at a different time in the world. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it'd be different, but no, I, I was never really drawn to that. I, I, I certainly did things early on that were not aligned with either of those approaches that were quite stupid and they were good learning experiences like investing in solar panel manufacturers. And I think I invested in a company at one point that uh, claimed to have invented some powder or something you poured in your drinks that cured hangovers, which sounds like a great invention. I just don't think the product actually worked. Uh, so they went, they went bust. I'm pretty sure. So I did some things that in hindsight were quite stupid and then were not really align with any sort of investment philosophy or at least one that made sense. But after that point, yeah, I, again, the, the Microsoft experience was really, really a big learning experience. And I invested in companies like PepsiCo and Johnson and Johnson early on. And I, I think I got an appreciation for their ability to use their sustainable competitive advantages to stamp out, you know, pretty reasonable growth rates with, with consistency. So Interesting because, yeah, I mean, at the start, when you say Jake, like, I mean, we looked at like very undervalued securities, um, yeah. but a lot of them were like really, really like crappy, crappy businesses that we knew uh, weren't all that well. I mean, the, the probably the most undervalued security or closest thing to like a Benjamin Graham approach would be Syracuse Growth Properties for us, Jake, would it be? Yeah. And I think to add on that, I think we started really investing like a few months after the initial COVID crash. So there was like a few things out there that were kind of like net nets almost mm-hmm. now, but now that you can't really find any of them. Like it's, yeah, it's just a hard, if for me, it feels like a difficult game to all, every, every approach has its, obviously it's pros and cons and what those pros and cons are obviously can, can change throughout the course of a market cycle. For me, it just strikes me as, and I think about this a lot more than I, than I used to. It, it helps for me to take a step back from the stock sometimes and just think about the business. And I think about, you know, I remember people pitching me GameStop before it was a meme stock or whatever the hell is going on. I have no idea. <laughs> the, the insanity that's going on with GameStop. <laughs> but but you, you look at a company like that and you see the turnover in the C-suite and you just think about what type of people want to continue work is it a good environment to work in i would assume in a lot of ways it's not you can read things about being a store manager for a GameStop, and some of the things i've read are are not flattering and you know you just think about the culture and the kind of people who want to continue working there and it becomes you know it's a spiral to a certain extent and you know management is not not totally focused on maximizing the per share value of the business, which may include closing a bunch of stores and things like that, they're, they're more focused on keeping their job, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of times when you step back from a stock, and it, obviously this isn't true for all net nets, but when you step back from the stock and think about the business, in a lot of cases you go, well, is this, is this really where I want to be putting my precious capital for the next you know, if you're, if you're a long-term investor, where I want to lock it up for the next five to 10 years, just because this thing looks optically cheap, or would I rather invest in a business that is inventing and creating 
you know, growing and, and trying to find its path to the future. And it has employees who, you know, think about a company like Netflix. They've, they've basically done no M&A. They've had a very clear mission and a culture that's aligned around that singular mission for a, for a fair amount of time now. Um, and they've just shown an ability to execute. And it's the kind of place that you can imagine it. If you work there, you have a very clear sense of where the company's trying to go and you see a bright future ahead. And that just seems so much more compelling to me as something to bet on for the long term than something that just appears optically cheap. Mm -hmm. yeah. But people make money playing that game. I'm not saying that it's not right for anybody. Just for me, I've, I've really, I really lost interest in, in that type of investing. Yeah, I mean, that's what uh, me and Jake... Jake got me onto the whole Munger approach. I was more interested in the, um, for, for maybe a couple of months, I was interested in looking for very undervalued securities that were just dying businesses or they were already just about to go bankrupt um, almost. And I'm pretty happy that I was able to get out of that kind of mindset. <laughs> it just never made any sense to me. It, it, mm -hmm. Like investing in those type of businesses. It just never made like, it's so much it, like if it has debt on its balance sheet too, like no matter how much you could liquidate the assets for management can still drag it into bankruptcy and it could be a restructuring, you know, like it's, there's so much that can go wrong. I find. Yeah. And you're so much more susceptible to outside forces, right? Like if you're a company like that and it's late 2019 and you think you find a great idea and then COVID, you know, COVID happens or a recession happens or, you know, any number of things happen. Um, maybe the payoff justifies incurring that risk, you know, the expected payoff, I should say, but it's just, you know, think about, I think about Buffett when he, when he was doing something similar to this, but he was at a point in his career where he had enough money, where he was actually, you know, owning material percentages of the company and he had to deal with liquidating a business and had to deal with dying businesses and, as as he as he makes clear, that's not a fun thing to be doing. I mean, these it, it it really isn't enjoyable. So I don't know. I guess some of it's even just choosing what you what you want to do with your life. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I mean, this is always a question that I'm always interested in asking. Um, what are some of your latest like favorite books or articles that you've read? Favorite books. Hmm. Well, I'm re right now I'm reading Amazon Unbound, which is the new Brad Stone book about Amazon. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really good so far. Uh, the Spotify play is, it, I, I thought that was a really interesting book. Um, what else? Articles. I, I always talk about some of these, you know, like Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, they'll do kind of these more detailed uh, historical articles about companies. One that always comes to mind, Bloomberg did one on the oral history of Chipotle. And it talks about, you know, the founding of the company and uh, the eventually the, the acquisition by McDonald's and, you know, the history of the company throughout the early 2000s and up and up into the 2010s and beyond. Um, I, I just find stuff like that fascinating. Um, I'm thinking of other books I've read lately that were really interesting. Give me one second. I was just running over to look at my bookshelf. <laughs> um, I thought the ride of a lifetime, the Bob Iger book was, was pretty interesting. 
and now I'm blanking on the name of the other book. It's about uh, Vail Resorts. It's about kind of the the, snow, the skiing industry. Um, I've, I'm still about halfway through that one, but that's another book that's that's really interesting to me. So kind of kind of the point I mentioned earlier, as you can tell, I I don't really read many investment books anymore, mm-hmm. which I've, I've read plenty of them, but they, you know, to the extent that you're really thinking about investing in terms of owning businesses for the long term, I've just found it a lot more helpful to to start focusing more on operators and, you know, historic results and some of the businesses that have have proven an ability to execute. Yeah, I mean, like, since I've been in really kind of in this whole uh, investing world, I've been reading for about two and a half years now, and I've started coming out of the investing books and started coming into like the uh, business biographies, as well as like the entrepreneurial biographies. Uh, so I just mm-hmm. like the uh, Jack Ma, the, Ho- the Jack Ma Alibaba book. Um, and then just started. How was that? Was it a good read? That's yeah, a really excellent. good read. Yeah. Excellent read. Yeah. Yeah. We both just read that. It was a really good read, honestly. Um, and then also I just finished up on the four. That's like the Facebook, um, Apple. Right, right. Uh, that the Galloway book? And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was a really good book too, I found. Interesting. I'll have to get those. Yeah. No, I really like those books. Those are like my f- latest like business biographies and business books that I've read. Um, but yeah, like it, it's similar to uh, like the guy that got me onto the business biographies was Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding. Um, oh yeah watch, and, yeah and jeff gannon those guys yeah. the, those guys really uh they read a lot of business biographies and that's what uh they said helped them early on in their investment careers so I kind of i'm not call, i'm not calling jeff gannon old but he was kind of an inspiration for me like when i started <laughs> when i started mm-hmm. writing or when i at least as far as i remember it seemed like it was pretty early on he was always a always a great uh communicator but obviously someone who really understood business and investing as well so he's someone i i always always look forward to reading his work yeah, he's yeah, got he's really good work. Yeah. 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 Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your own um, investment research service on Subtrack, Substack? Sure, yeah. Um, so I launched in I launched in April of this year. Uh, kind of the core idea of the Substack is, if I had to put it in a sentence, I'm, I'm essentially offering everything I do to subscribers. So you, you can kind of view it as the equivalent of hiring an equities analyst. You, you don't tell me what I research. I choose what I research. But besides that, I effectively work for you. And and the output is um, every Monday and every other Thursday, I write a post. And, you know, oftentimes there'll be pitches on new companies. You know, lately, I've done uh, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, you know, I, I looked at Spotify, which was kind of a new one for me. I looked at Netflix, which was the newer one for me. But then I also do company updates around things like quarterly earnings. So I've looked at Facebook, which is a company that I've uh, that I own. Um, I looked at Microsoft, which is obviously a company I own as well. And then other things like, for example, when Microsoft announced they're acquiring Nuance, which I men- mentioned earlier, I look at things like that and, and think about how they play into into the long term investment thesis. Um, and, the, and the other thing that I that I offer through the service on top of all my my analysis is anytime I make portfolio changes, I outline what I'm buying, what I'm selling, and then the rationale for both sides of the transaction. So, you know, as, as I was launching the service, I really thought about th- there are 
a fair number of people out there that I think are doing really high quality work and, and I hope my work is on par with them, but what could I do to differentiate it further? And I thought offering the ability or offering people, you know, the, the chance to see the full circle, essentially how the thinking on a company eventually works its way into the portfolio or explaining why it's not working its way into the portfolio right now. Um, I, I just thought that was another layer that would be really helpful for um, a certain type of investor. So as I said, it's been two months. Um, you know, it's got, it's gotten fairly good traction so far. I, I obviously came to the plate with 10 years of writing. So I, I think that provided somewhat of a tailwind. Um, but yes, I spend my days now just trying to, trying to find new companies to write about or ideas to write about that I, that I think would interest uh, readers. So to, the post I have coming out tomorrow, which I, obviously this will be live by the time it comes out, but uh, it talks about, you know, never sell. And the idea of basically a coffee can portfolio is another term that people have used for it in the past and, and how to think about that in the context of portfolio management. So uh, I, the feedback so far has been good. And I, I think the quality of the, quality of the work has been really high so far, which for me is the most important thing. So I'm happy with it. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I've, I've read a lot of your articles um, on guru focus um, mm -hmm. and it took me forever to match Alex Morris with the science of hitting. I wasn't sure who the guy behind the science of hitting was until a couple of months, like maybe a month and a half ago. Um, when you yeah. I might, podcast, need to work my branding. I might need to work on my not, branding a little bit. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah. You have, you have really good articles uh, on guru focus. So I, I appreciate that. I, I can only imagine what's going to be on Substack. Um, so I definitely, yeah. If anyone's. Yeah. I've done whatever I I've, I've worked really hard to try to make them, you know, I just picked a random number, but I said, if I can make these 20 to 30% better than what I was putting out previously, I'd be pretty proud of that. And, you know, it's, it's obviously difficult for me to judge because I'm incredibly biased, but I've had, I've had good feedback from the people who have subscribed. So that you know, obviously that, that makes me happy. Well, awesome. So thank you very much for coming on and talking to me and Jake today. Um, we'd love to have you on for season two of uh, money under the mattress. Um, is there anything else that you want to add today, Jake? No, I'd like to thank you for coming on, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited to see, as I told you before we started, I think it's ex it's exciting to see two guys who sound like they're like me when I was, as we as we realized, quite a bit younger than I am now. So uh, I'm, I'm, exci I'm excited to see what you guys do here over the coming years, and I'd be more than happy to come back sometime. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, I guess we'll see you around uh, Fintwit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Sounds thank good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money Under the Mattress. If you have any questions about this episode, you can email us at moneyunderthemattress.podcast at gmail.com. Everything discussed in this podcast is our opinion and should not be used as investment advice. This podcast is for your entertainment and education purposes only, and we hope that you enjoyed it.